Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment. It's a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve this history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in a time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. My name is Anthony. I'm Miles. And I am Red. This week, we're going to discuss video game news and then get into a short conversation about the Atari 2600 and what it was like back in the day with uh, maid volunteer John Damien. He is a longtime volunteer who is up in Portland now. We are glad to welcome him back on the podcast. After that conversation, we'll bring it up with some game talk. So to bring in news of the day, Miles, you wanted to celebrate an important video game holiday, correct? That's right, Red. Two days ago was November 7th, also known as Mass Effect Day. And we got some interesting news, first off of which is that next year we're going to be getting Mass Effect uh, Legendary Edition, which is the first three games that have been remastered and updated for new consoles. I started playing the series with the second one because the first one came out, I think, when I was uh, 13, 14. Uh, I didn't have a console back then, so I didn't really play any games outside of Nintendo games. But uh, the first... The first three games and then Mass Effect Andromeda, which came out in 2017, are basically Bioware's foray into the sort of sci-fi action RPG space. And Bioware has a long history of doing really, really excellent RPG games. They did the original Baldur's Gates. They did Neverwinter Nights. They did the Star Wars The Old Republic games. Ooh, The Old Republic. Uh, They did Dragon Age. Ooh, the Dragon Age games are another one of my favorites. All right. Yeah, Bioware has a really excellent track record of doing role-playing games with excellent story and that's sort of what attracted me to the mass effect franchise because i love Mm sci-fi and i absolutely love games that let you really play out a character and sort of do the whole story element of it the gameplay is kind of this like sort of over the shoulder third person like cover-based shooter kind of i don't really want to say it's kind of gears of worry like it's definitely not really combat combat like Gears of War is. It's not particularly violent, but the story of it is essentially you're this sort of space navy person named Commander Shepard, and you know aliens are invading. Basically, uh, this sort of extra galactic alien robot threat. Over the course of the three games, you know that they're coming, and you have to basically prepare to stop them. And in the final game, uh, the final battle happens, and things get wacky. Oh, how wacky! Like Star Trek space wacky, or like Cronenberg wacky? <laughs> it's more Star Trek than Cronenberg. Okay. It's funny you should bring that up because the second game revolves around these sort of Cronenbergy monsters that are or aliens that are basically abducting humans and blending them into human pudding. Oh, so slurm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was really weird, and uh, that final boss fight uh, really sort of stuck with me because it's quite an image. Um, but no, the games are all a lot of fun. The whole franchise has sort of been on hold since Andromeda came out in 2017, three years ago. Mm. And it's a uh, it's just good to get some some new news on them. Yeah, that'll be. It's nice that we that they actually set aside a day of the year to celebrate uh, the new game and more space exploration. The Mass Effect games uh, haven't been on my radar, but now with that announcement of the first three remastered uh, for the next gen, mm-hmm. that's gonna also probably gonna be one of the first things that I might try and get. The next thing semi newsworthy about the next generation console, I saw a news story this weekend about the last Guardian. Uh, on PS5, mm-hmm. not being, if you don't have, if you have the digital only console, it's going to be a frame rate cap of 30 FPS, 
which is a little bit disappointing for a next generation console, especially for a game that was supposed to enjoy the boosts of the next generation console. For sure. The, the biggest thing that they haven't confirmed yet is if it's going to apply to other games. I have a feeling it will just for playability's sake because it's just a patch in the game that caps the frame rate on the console. If you have the disc, then the frame rate can be unlocked to a full 60. But it'll be very interesting to see how that, how going forward, what games you're going to need to potentially repurchase on the PS5 that you've already purchased on PS4, or whether games that you're thinking about getting on PS5 are even going to show the next generation capabilities that you thought you were going to get. So hopefully they will explain that soon, because that that's a very interesting thing to have happen. Mm-hmm. In other news, the controller on the PS5, apparently the little texture pattern on the controller is a bunch of micro, like really tiny X's, squares, triangles, and O's. Oh, yeah, I saw uh, that. Circles. That to me is that I really hope that it's just a a fancy mold that they made because that's going to be one really intense. uh, That's a really intense thing to put that much detail into is the grip matching your aesthetic and matching your brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also uh, changed the name from dual shock to dual sense. Uh, and I guess because there's uh, more directional vibration and there's also with the triggers, I thought this was going to be kind of cool, but we'll see however many games use these new controller features, but it has tension on the triggers now so for certain things if it's like harder to turn the more you press down like or if you're pulling a trigger uh the trigger will like push back a certain length down so it acts like you're building up more tension and it's becoming harder to hold down we'll see if it's used in a game like uh horizon zero dawn which is also uh or then the next game in the horizon zero dawn zero west zero west that's right uh, that's supposed to be coming out later half of next year because of the bow and arrow. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if it's like if you're pu- the more you pull back the bow, if it, if you get that tension feel. There's lots of cool things coming up with the next generation of consoles. Mm-hmm. I think that's it for the news, and we will send it on to John and Alex. Howdy, everybody. This is Alex Handy at the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, and I have the distinct honor of interviewing one of our vol- uh, former volunteers, although hopefully he'll never actually truly leave us, uh, John Demian, who was our former creative director and uh, our Atari nerd on staff for a good while there. Welcome, John. Thanks, Alex. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe what you did at The Maid and you know your personal experience and why you came to Atari? Let's see. I discovered actually... Uh the museum a while back and uh, started volunteering. I've enjoyed having and playing with Atari ever since uh, 1977 when it was released. Uh, I have a twin brother, so I had a built-in competitor. He'd like to say he won most of the time, but that was not the fact. And uh, Bill and I have a have acquired a large Atari collection over the years, um, over 400 cartridges, uh, some oddball, one-of-a-kind kind of kind of things that maybe I'll talk about a couple of them down the road here. And uh, I have uh, was an active member for the Maid Museum, and uh, hopefully I can contribute in any way down the road. And I've also volunteered at other things up here for the uh, Portland Retro Gaming Expo, where I currently live in the area. Um, and we actually had the museum up here 
uh, represented for a couple couple of years up here as well too when the show was active. So, um, but I've been uh, loving video games from a long time ago, um, and uh, looking forward to see what's coming out down the road. One of the things that I'm trying to focus on in this podcast is sort of the context. There's lots of people doing the history and and interviewing the the, the luminaries of the industry, and we do want to do that also. But uh, the thing I'm really interested in is context. You know, setting explaining to these kids today what it was like to play Atari in the day. You know, one of the questions I always loved we would get at the museum was, why did they make this game suck? And so I guess what I want to ask you is, why did you fall in love with Atari initially? What what gave you the interest in the Atari 2600? Well, I was, I and my brother, basically, we were always wanting to go to the arcades, the miniature golf courses around. My mom would drop us off while she was visiting her mom. I lived in Pleasanton. She visited in Castor Valley. We would go to the miniature golf course, play around to that, and then we'd just have a pocket full of quarters playing video games. What games? What games? Um, I mean, early ones like Pong. There, there are all kinds of tennis tennis Pong pong games like that. What was that, Space? Right at the start. Yeah, right at the start. Um, we were young, but it was a, it was the new thing on the block. Every, everybody's got that new console these days, but we had we had to go somewhere to get our entertainment uh, along those lines. So that was, you know, early 70s. And then the consoles started coming out in basically 1977 for Atari. So that's where um, that integration of a lot of consoles or a lot of games that Atari came out with were actually hoarded from arcade machines. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, was it just that desire to be able to play without having to pop in quarters or or it was you wanted to be able to play Space Invaders or Asteroids or all those popular arcade games at home? Or what was the mystique? I mean, and, and also, did you have anything else that plugged into the television at the time? That was basically it. I mean, there were no VCRs back then. Um, the television was the television. Uh, my brother and I were remote controls for our parents and they'd be sitting on the couch or in the kitchen. So we'd be do, doing the channel change and everything like that. So convenience these days is a lot different than than what it was in the in the in the 70s when this stuff all started coming out. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so when you actually you, you talk about the, the competition with your brother, you had that built in competition. I mean, that was another big aspect of the arcade. You mentioned Pong and you mentioned the Atari 2600 as being very multiplayer focused. They're, you know, they are very competitive sort of systems and games, which is a little bit different than maybe the, the sort of the game world today where, you know, we have online games, but the right. the head-to-head standing next to somebody kind of couch co-op is sort of coming back now, right? Like it went away. But that was the soul of this sort of experience, right? It was a family thing. It was advertised actually as, you know, family enjoyment. The, the front cover of the Atari VCS box when it was first came out was known as a video computer system. It was family-oriented. There were family games on it that kind of pictured togetherness in that sense. The console was packaged with two joystick controllers, a set of paddle controllers. Um, The original console was now known as the Heavy Sixer, built in Sunnyvale. Why is it called that? The Heavy Sixer was, was called that because when the Atari VCS was first released, they did not know how the magnetic shielding was gonna affect signals in the house and on the TV. This was usually set up on top of the TV. So basically, the Heavy Sixer had more metal, aluminum components, thicker plastic, that helped shield the signals to protect the TV signal that you, what you would see on the TV. And what was the six referring to? 
The sixer part was referring to how many switches, slide switches, were on the top of the console that you would adjust difficulty settings, black and white color, for example, on off. So that was the basic layout of the system for, for a number of years. So here's a question for you. And, and again, setting context, I don't think that every modern day gamer quite realizes there was no pause button on the Atari 2600. No, many games were left on in our house while we had meals, basically, so we can get back to it um, when we were done eating and things. So um, later on, my my dad would, would uh, we got the chess game for my dad. The chess game was known to have some glitches. We would call it cheating. Uh, when you'd kind of see a little wavery movement there and things happen that probably wouldn't happen in normal life. But my dad would play the difficult levels and we would leave that on all night long to see if the computer would make a move the next day. So no pause button. You did it right then and there. And when you were done, off it went. Wait, wait, you had to leave it on all night to see if it would make a move the next day. It took it that long to calculate the move? If you had it on one of the highest difficulty settings, yes. So my dad was an advanced chess player. That was what he wanted to be challenged with, and it was challenging. He did not win all the time. So there was some very good programming going on with, with minimal memory capacity back then, too. That's amazing. It, that, the chess program is a whole episode worth doing, and I couldn't even begin to go into that right now. But it is remarkable to think of having a home console video game that you know had a setting that required you to let it sit overnight to counter your moves right right um and, and there's i can't recall exactly what the time frame was involved with the the difficulty settings but but a lot of those were not instantaneous indeed and uh, i mean with your brother there you did have a lot of built-in combat and video olympics and other things to play i mean what were your favorites what was the what did you really get in it over i i think some of our favorite things were combat it was just something that was easy that there were many different challenges in what they set up with that we always like playing the uh the biplane level or the jet level where there's two clouds and you go hide in the clouds and, and trying to defeat the other player some of our other favorites were canyon bomber which was kind of like a breakout game but basically you were dropping bombs on a canyon that had different blocks in it Trying to get the last block to win the game was kind of cool. Um, Air Sea Battle was always fun for us. Missile Command, I love playing. Air Sea Battle. Um, later on, Asteroids. Uh, one of my favorite games uh, was probably Indy 500. There were a, a bunch of different uh, racetracks that were up there. Atari was known for their uh, a lot of racing games. Uh, like Night Driver in the past as well, too. Um, there was an arcade machine called Indy 8 that had eight players, two on each side, that we would play in big arcades, like at Disneyland, um, that just had different tracks on it you could cycle through. And it, it was a lot of built-in fun, but also competition at the same time. Yeah, the Indy 500 game, We set. The, I remember when we set that up and had the paddles going at the museum. That is a fun game on the paddles. It is still a lot of fun. Yeah, one special thing about that game was that the paddles for Indy 500 looked just like the regular tennis paddles. But they did not stop, so they they continuously would would revolve around, and what made it and that's the only way you could really drive in that sense, um, without coming up against a stopping in, in the joystick level. Um, one of our favorite games was Ice Race. You can go slip sliding around the track and, and stuff like that. That was it, and it was fun. You can you can crash into other people, cause, cause some havoc out there, and uh, it, it's still one of my favorite games to play. 
the racing controller comes uh, as an individual plug-in, right? It's it's only uh, you plug you can only plug in two, right? Unlike the Pong controllers, where you can plug in four. Correct. No, wrong? the uh, the racing controllers were individual to go to the different uh, two different uh, nine-pin joystick ports on the back of the consoles, and uh, and the and the paddle controllers were double, so you could. You could do multiple players like with Video Olympics and Pong and things like that. Yeah, well, there's always an asterisk on this podcast that if we're wrong, we'll <laughs> at least uh, issue a correction at a later date. And we're, I'm sure we're frequently wrong because we're doing this yeah. off the top of our heads. Uh, but uh, I wanted to shift gears a little bit because one of the things you also worked on at the museum uh, was an Atari Soft exhibit. That was sort of going on at the same time as this. Can you talk about what Atari Soft was and why that was interesting? Sure. Um, someday I'll finish that exhibit. I've got a box of stuff somewhere. But what Atari Soft was, Atari Soft was basically the capability of Atari to, to market and sell cartridges that they had under their label to other game console manufacturers. So uh, I don't have anything in front of me off the top of my head, but basically there were games that were marketed to uh, Texas Instruments for the TI-99, um, IBM for the IBM PC Junior, I think, as well, too, as far as, as long with the uh, ColecoVision what else am I missing here? Well, the one that comes to mind for me was that you, uh, the Atari computer systems, the 8-bit computer systems were out around the same time as the uh, VCS, and you pulled out uh, Eastern Front, yes. I believe it is called. Yeah, the Chris Crawford game, one of the earliest war games, and Chris came to speak at the museum, and uh, that was just a, a fantastically ahead-of-its-time game at the time. It was. I actually have that cartridge here right in front of me, and and, and basically I... I've, uh, was interested in military history. I had family members who served in the military, um, and that was one of the games that I played on actually an Atari 400 computer that had a membrane keyboard. A little different way to do things, but it was uh, less expensive to do that. The partner computer to that, a little more advanced, was the Atari 800. But Eastern Front was a very advanced game that, that won uh, many awards, um, and it actually started as an Atari... We're going to shift here a tiny bit, but an Atari program exchange game that Atari basically had for self, you know, homebrew people to come up with games um, themselves. And so Atari APX was basically the first kind of shareware kind of thing that, that kind of merged into people kind of doing stuff at home and, and people able to buy out there in the retail world. Yeah, and uh, Chris Crawford went on to make a whole bunch of very influential games uh, across many other platforms. Uh such as balance of power uh, and he was a terrific speaker he always has been a terrific speaker it was, a it was. that that was nice having him there uh one of the things you mentioned at the very beginning was your collection so what are some of the highlights of your atari vcs cartridge collection one of the cartridges that first got attention from between my brother and i playing was a game called malagai and i don't have that information in front of me exactly i'm trying to remember who made malagai um, I can look it up here in a minute, but basically it was a game that was like a, on the charts now. It was like a level eight uh, as far as rarity. Uh, my brother found one. He actually down the road, he found another one just out in the wild, whether it was a thrift shop or a flea market or something like that. We were kind of looking for stuff basically in the early 90s a lot, kind of bringing back some memories, trying, trying to put some systems together and, and things like that. And that was a rarity that we we found. The game was not very good. Alex talked about games not being very good here earlier. Um, a lot of these were just kind of like uh, 
uh, reruns of, of something else that were just called a, a new game and put out by another another company trying to make some money. Yeah, this looks like a, a Pac-Man yeah. kind of game. Yeah, so um, kind, of, kind of basic in that sense. Uh, playability was, was poor, but uh, rarity value was rather high. Recently, they sell for hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Thousands. Uh, that's a, uh, a huge uh, in the yeah. wild find. What, what else? What he, else do you is, uh, particularly? You know, one of, one of the other things I, I've always I've been trying to put together a collection of, of uh, the Sears consoles. Sears had had a line of uh, of of uh, video computers out there, um, uh, basically, that that they were doing just releasing it in the Sears stores. Um, they have a number of different games out there. There were like three games. One of them was called Steeplechase um, that were only released on the Sears console, but they had a heavy sixer version as well too. So just trying to put together little side collections of those is always fun. A lot of people collect genres or different label type of cartridges in that sense. Uh, one of the fun things that my brother and I uh, have come across was a, an Atari fiber optic sign. I actually had it in the museum a little bit before showing it off. And it was a unique thing that uh, we found at a, uh, a lighting store down in Southern California who catered to the Hollywood uh, market. And it was a, a, something different that basically ran through a rainbow coloration that is kind of like a kind of like what you see on some of the preview of some of the later Atari games in that sense for the Fuji logo in, in the, how the colors waved across. That's really neat. And uh, just since you're an expert at this sort of stuff, and while we got you here, I know some people who are out there are going to want to know. Got some thrift store tips and digging tips, how to find good stuff? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. The Bay Area is a better market for that than anything up here in the Portland area. Portland up here is basically uh, everyone is into gaming up here. Weather's a little more dreary, so people have spent more time inside, I think. But there's a lot of... Uh, there, there's places you can find a few things. There's some nice video game stores up here as well, too. As far as... Finding stuff out there in the wild, you got to keep your eyes open. You got to look high and low. Things are not always obvious on the table right there in front of you. And my brain's kind of locked into finding cartridges. I know what those cartridges look like in those consoles, but there's other rarities and stuff out there too. There's rare joysticks. Um, there's rare software pieces. There's rare packaging as well. So just kind of take more in when you're looking around at things. Um, and you'll probably find more that way too. Yeah, I actually have a phrase for this. I call it soft eyes. So <laughs> I'm totally misusing it. I think it comes from the wire. Okay. <laughs> totally misusing the phrase, but I call it that where you're ability, you're able to like sort of look over a pile of junk and not really focus in on anything and just let something grab. Yeah, yeah. That That's exactly what it takes to find some stuff that you're probably looking for. It's easy to find a combat cartridge, if you're going to find a combat cartridge, you want a combat cartridge, look for the one that says 01 on it. That was the one that was the original one that came out with, with the original Heavy Sixer consoles when they were first released. All the original cartridges at launch had numbers on them. So whether it was 01 for combat, um, I'm going to get numbers wrong here, but uh, you know, Indy 500 had a certain number with it. That was a launch a launch vehicle for it. Um, but those this are the is, rare This ones. is on the... This is on the labeling on the end of the cartridge. It says exactly. one combat. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so that's, that's always fun, trying to put something together. The original cartridges came in gatefold, what they called gatefold boxes that were glossy, and they had an opening flap to it. So you didn't just open a box from the end. 
it kind of gave you a picture preview. And one of the neat things about Atari when they first came out, as well as later years, their graphics were actually tried to draw you in as far as what the game was about. Not that the gameplay was exactly what was portrayed in that sense, but it gave you an image about it. I remember my uncle flew B-25 bombers in World War II. And on the cover of combat, there's B-25 bombers right there. There's no B-25 bomber in the game exactly, but it portrayed what actually the gameplay was about. Oh, the art for the Atari covers. I mean, Atari game cover art is just spectacular. I encourage everybody listening to this to uh, seek it out. Unfortunately, we have uh, run out of time, but thank you so much for being here, John. I'll ask you back at some point. Uh, we're just doing a timeline series and have hit the Atari's era. So That's fine. the first person I thought of. Well, I appreciate the the pleasure of being being on here and talking about it, and I uh, look forward to doing it again when you want to do more. Excellent. Now, hopefully, by the time people are listening to this, the our secondary podcast uh, is fired up, and you can uh, go have a conversation with Wolf on that one. That would be fun. And uh, thank you for all the time you spent uh, volunteering and continue to spend, you know, helping us out and, and keeping an eye out for stuff that will help us out. We appreciate it, John. Sounds great. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. All right. And uh, we'll hand it back to the guys in the studio. Thanks. Bye. Well, thank you, John and Alex. What have y'all been playing? Um, same game, Watch Dogs Legion. It's a pretty big game, and it's easy to sort of just get sidetracked with all the sort of extra side quests and places to explore areas in the game. So um, I'm still working through that game. I'm definitely enjoying it, and I definitely want to enjoy the the whole world, mm-hmm. city of London. Oh, it is London. Okay, yeah. I was just about to ask. Is it like its own created city, or is it a map of a real-world city? Um, it's, it's more of like sort of a custom-made map of London. I'm not sure how exactly close to the relevance of the actual places in London. Okay, but it's London. Yeah. Quotation. Yeah, it's London. Like- yeah. Yeah, from what I've seen of it, it's very much like, oh, this is London. Um, okay. Again, not sure how accurate it is. I, I'm, I'm actually curious to see like how close of a map it is. Like, you know, do the landmarks mm-hmm. do a good job? Because they did that with the previous two ones. Like, did that with um, Chicago and San Francisco. Like, it was pretty close. Oh. Uh, with the previous two games. Ooh, I didn't realize that the second one was in San Francisco. That would be that would be cool to run around a place that I live in a in a virtual world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's better than going outside. No, exactly um. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, for this year maybe. Yeah. <laughs> as far as like Watchdogs go, and the new one Legion, what is what are some of you said you're getting distracted by some of the side missions? What are some of the side missions? What do they feel like aside from like the main story? Um, they're similar. Um, I'm sure you guys were. I mentioned this last time that uh, each NPC is a playable character with their own mm-hmm. side missions. And so in order to recruit them onto your team, you have to sort of do a mission to gain their respect and to get them to join your team. So uh, okay. I find that it's either one of three uh, missions. One of them is just to infiltrate a so- sort of stronghold, acquire some kind of information or steal a vehicle which contains valuable equipment and sort of drive it off and or another one is uh survive waves of enemies coming to attack you okay but in addition although the mission structure is the same uh the dialogue varies from Mm -hmm. each npc so that part is just it's always refreshing to sort of hear the new dialogue that comes on that is really interesting to have like multiple characters kind of jump out and then 
for the di- for the the amount of effort it takes for the dialogue to be different for each NPC, I think that is something that would really that that really makes it feel like it's a new world and like you're enveloped in it. So you're not just repeating the same alternating five sentences that like certain NPCs have. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I was going to be an adventurer like you that I took an arrow to the knee. Um, <laughs> there's some of those things that like become fun in older games, but with the newer games, you just don't, it's not necessary anymore for that. You can actually flesh out a world. And I, right. It's good to see that they're doing that and not make it a, a, a set list of six responses for, but every BC is unique. It's like a set of six different missions and six different sentences that are just swapped out for each time. Yeah, so it's like just you get... given different characters to read. Mm-hmm. I am curious to see the um, like the credits or like the stats for that game. Like, how mm. many different voice actors did they have? How many different line reads are there? Because like, there's got to be a point where the writing team is just like, okay, we can't do any more variation. Like, I'm I'm curious just to see sort of what that point of this is too much was because i remember for i remember for dragon age famously they got really good voice talent and did some astronomical number of of line reads there's so much written Mm. there's like there's so much voice acting in dragon age origins wow and i'm just curious to see like sort of what the stopping point is for that like what bar are you trying to set when you have a potentially infinite number of playable characters yeah maybe memory because you can't really you can't really compress the human voice that much and make it still sound good i'm Always curious as in the massive open world games that allow you to like talk to everyone. Mm-hmm. If everybody has like a little side mission that you can do and essentially that I like that because then you can truly be as selective as you want or go into as deep of a level that you want. So what are we going to be talking about next week? We're going to be talking about the 80s, right? Yeah. Next week, we're going to be getting into the 80s. All righty. So, I want to start thanking you all for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. Uh, Next week, we will be talking about the 80s, one of the most interesting decades in gaming history. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, uh, please shoot us an email at info at themade.org. That is info at themade.org. We'd like to send a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors will be getting this podcast one week before it goes public on the major streaming services, and we'll continue with the future episodes every week. Till then, I am Red. I'm Anthony. And I'm Miles. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. See you later, guys. See ya.